The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. If I didn't get a chance to meet you as you were coming in, I, I think uh, this is the, the post-college students gone, except for two. Uh, I don't know. This is Mother's Day thing. People are eating brunch already. So uh, glad that you're here. Welcome. Uh, if you're online with us, welcome to you as well. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, would you please open it up to Matthew chapter 14? That's what was read over us. Uh, Matthew 14. Uh, you can, if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We have hardback black Bibles under every single chair. Matthew 14 is where we're going to be. It's on page 820 in those Bibles. If you are online with us, click that little Bible tab. I'd love for you to do uh, that so you can see the text and follow along with us. But uh, happy Mother's Day. I said it to most of y'all on the way in, but happy Mother's Day. Uh, I, I feel like I should say a couple of things about mamas real quick, uh, just because it's Mother's Day. Uh, here's what I know about today. Um, Mother's Day can, can represent, it can represent some of the highest highs for some, Right, and it can also represent some of your lowest lows. It's just it's kind of part and parcel to the culture around Mother's Day. And so let me just say this: I say this every year. It's a little theology lesson. This one is for free. Okay, you don't have to pay me for this one. This is a little bonus. Okay, um, did you know that Adam, uh, as in the Genesis chapter one and two, Adam and Eve, Adam, when his wife is presented to him by God after he creates her, uh, Adam gets to name her, and he names her Eve. Eve, and that. A word, that name means mother of all living things. That's what Eve means. But when Adam names her that, uh, she has not yet given birth. She's not biologically a mother, and yet she is given the title and, and the name mother of all living things. So here's what I think that means. I think that means that in the kingdom of God, in the church, um, if you are a woman whether you have biological children or not, you are called to be a mother in the kingdom of God. You're called to mother people in the kingdom. This is why the church, one of the predominant illustrations for the church, analogies for the church in the New Testament is a family. We are the family of God. And so we need every single woman in our uh, church to do what God has called you to do because we're all in this together. And this is what you're called. You're called to be a mother, whether you have your own children, whether you adopt or foster, whether you're married or single, whether you'll ever have your own biological children, you're called to be mothers in in this house. So if this day represents great joy for you, then man, God bless that and enjoy it. Go eat some, I don't know, what do you eat on Mother's Day? Ham? That's Easter. <laughs> Mother's Day ham? That doesn't sound very good, does it? Um, uh, but, it but whatever it is, if, if, if today represents the high for you, man, go have a fun, wonderful Mother's Day. And if it doesn't, if it hits you a little bit differently, maybe there's a little bit of grief or sorrow in this day, I would just encourage you to lean into that and praise God at the same, in that, with that same breath. Because you, we, we, we could not do this without you, without each one of you women, without each one of you gals. So uh, blessings to you. We love you. Happy Mother's Day, okay? That's my Mother's Day thing. We good? You feel okay? Great. Um, all right. Church, last week, our sermon was on uh, a beheading and adultery and incest. 
And today we are gonna talk about evangelism. Uh, so I'm not sure which one you're gonna like less. Just in complete honesty, nobody likes to talk about evangelism uh, in the church. And, and I've told you before, but when COVID hit, uh, our church, like most churches, experienced some downturn, like we lost some people during the COVID season. This happened uh, almost universally to churches in our world, that people just kind of gave up on church during COVID. But then over for us, over the last year or so, there have been a bunch of new people. We had to add the second service. Believe it or not, you could not have fit, fit in first service. So, so that's okay. But like we've had to add the second service. And, and, and so there's almost this, this season of renewal that seems to be upon us as a church where people, new people who don't even know Jesus are coming to our church and they're saying, I don't know what it is, but God's doing something in me. Like God is drawing people to himself. And so with, with so many newer people in the last year, I mean, some of you are newer in the last year, like this is new for you in the last 12 months. Um, one of the th- questions that I almost always get, when we, whether we do a pastor's coffee or I just meet somebody new, one of the questions I almost always get is this, how, you, how do you guys do outreach and evangelism? Like, what's your, what's your program for that? When you say you're passionate about seeing new people go deeper with God. So, so what's the plan? What's the plan? Uh, you guys gonna do something like having strong kind of bodybuilder type guys come on in and do like a program where they rip phone books in half and then they say, if you follow Jesus, you can rip a phone book too. Like, is that gonna be your thing? That's a real thing, by the way. Uh, I did have somebody after first service say, what's a phone book? Uh, so that really, that's a, this is a dated illustration, apparently. <laughs> Look up the power team on YouTube later today. That's good times, okay? Are we gonna do that? Is that how we're gonna grow this thing? Uh, are you guys gonna start doing kind of like uh, an advertising campaign with like mass mailers? You know, you get those cards in your mailbox every once in a while from a church and maybe hang up posters at the mall or like billboards, pay for it. Like, are you gonna do that? Is that how you're gonna outreach from here? How about giving people uh, signs and bullhorns and sending them down to Rockies games and they can just stand out there and yell at people and like come to Jesus sort of thing? Is that what we're gonna do? What's your plan? People are asked, what's your plan for ministry, for outreach, for evangelism? And frankly, I've been answering this the same way since even before COVID, but our plan hasn't really changed over these years, okay? Uh, No, we will not start getting ripped bros in tank tops, ripping things and blowing things up, although that would be kind of cool. I'd be afraid they would, you know, hit their head on our short ceiling, but like, I don't know. Like it's, we're not gonna be event evangelists, probably not going to be our style. And, uh, and we probably aren't going to change our ad- advertising strategy with like mailers and things like that. Uh, if you can call not having one a strategy, all right, um, that's probably not going to be us. And certainly not to note to the bullhorns, okay? If you go to a Broncos game or a Rockies game and you start doing that and you say you're from Fathom, we will deny culpability, okay? <laughs> Just so you're aware, that's... See, our plan for evangelism Fathom Church, our plan for reaching our neighbors, our plan for seeing people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus is simply this. Our plan is you. You are the plan. Okay, uh, if you were here with us on Easter a few weeks ago, we had, um, for our little church, we had about 50 first-time guests on Easter Sunday, and I did a lot of follow-up with a lot of people, and I'll just tell you this, without exception, every single one of our guests came because somebody else invited them. 
We had zero, to my understanding, zero guests on Easter who just came because they, 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 they were attracted here by something else. Every single guest who came, came because somebody invited somebody else and there was this network. And I just think, man, that is so awesome. That's so awesome. We could have tried to do something that would have attracted a bunch of people at like a big Easter egg hunt or like a big bouncy house thing in the parking lot or so. Like we could have done those things and that would have been all good and well and right. But we had 50 people who came because somebody else invited them. I think that's really awesome. And, and, and one thing that can happen as a church grows, even a small church like ours, is that, is that we can begin to think that the plan is gonna change. Like, sure, when the church is small, of course it's gonna be word of mouth. Of course it's gonna be inviting and investing in people. But, but once the church gets bigger and you get more services and there's maybe a building and there's a bunch of new people, sometimes people mistakenly think that, that it's actually my job, that it's like the pastor's job to do this outreach and evangelism thing. Uh, so, and I, I don't think anybody would ever say this to me like outright. I think you got more respect for me than that, but you probably think this, or maybe you would think something like, well, what are we paying you for, Chris? Right, you seem equipped to share the gospel. How about you just keep doing that? Just put on your little face mic and, you know, do your thing on Sundays and we'll keep coming and be entertained by you and we'll just keep paying you. Like what, this is what, you're the one who's in ministry here. I don't think you'd say that, but you, you might think that. But biblically, that's, that's backwards. Okay, in, in the book of Ephesians, which we are going to study this fall when I'm back from my sabbatical, we're gonna study through the book of Ephesians. Um, but in Ephesians 4, chap, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says that the reason God gives pastors to churches uh, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, first thing you need to know, the Bible just called you a saint, okay? So if you were raised Catholic, you can call Grammy on the way home and you say, Grandma, guess what? I'm a, I'm a saint. Yeah, my pastor told me that I am a saint. We're not gonna make like a necklace with your face on it or anything, but like, yeah, you don't look it and you maybe not, don't act like it, but you're, the Bible just called you a saint. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. And as a pastor, my job is to equip you, the saints, to do ministry. So I don't really work in the ministry. I work in the equipping industry and you work in the ministry, actually. Okay, you're the ones who live where you live. I don't live where you live unless you live on my block, right? Karina lives as close as anybody to me, but so we almost, you almost are off the hook, but you're not because you're not on my cul-de-sac, okay? You're the one who lives where you live. You're the one who plays where you play. You're the one who, who, who works where you work. You shop where you shop. I don't shop where you shop unless I see you at King Supers. Okay? Plus, I'm pretty sure everyone I work with is already a Christian. Um, we vet that pretty hard here at the church. So, uh, so I'm not in the ministry in that sense. I am on my block, but I'm not on your block. And, and our commitment here at the church at Fathom is that no matter how much we grow, like if we get bigger or we stay the same or we shrink down, here's our commitment. We're gonna preach the Bible. And, and we're going to celebrate the Lord every Sunday in song and in prayer and by taking the Lord's Supper. And we're gonna do our best to, to build structures for discipleship and to give you opportunities to serve both inside and outside the church. But, but at the end of this day, at the end of the day, we are committed to being utterly reliant on you to do the work of ministry in the city. Okay, if you don't love your neighbor, 
If you aren't committed to pay, uh, praying for your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends, like if you don't long for them to know and love Jesus, then Fathom Church will be dead in the water. Okay, so would you rather me preach on this or, or on a beheading? Because I'm happy to do that again. No? I'm not just making this stuff up either. This isn't just like Chris's little soapbox before he goes on sabbatical to just like let you know. Like uh, this is actually in our text today. So uh, Matthew chapter 14 is a very famous passage. We had some of it read over us. Uh, it's the feeding of the 5,000, which actually I had a typo in my first draft that I sent to the elders of this sermon. Uh, and it said the feeling of the 5,000, uh, which is not what I'll be preaching on. Um, and only one elder caught that. So... Uh, just don't know what they're doing, but um, the feeding of the 5,000. And here's, here's what I want you to know before we even jump into the text. This is the only miracle, aside from the resurrection of Jesus, that's recorded in all four gospels. It's the only one. Every other miracle is recorded either twice or three times or even once, but, but this is in all four of the gospels. This indicates the vast importance this had to the early church because of its depth of theology. So even though this is probably, if you've been in church for a minute, a very familiar story, uh, this is a really important miracle and it has great depth for us. So that's where we're going to spend our time. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week, uh, starting in verse 13. So Matthew 14, starting in verse 13. Follow along with me. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Okay. So those two verses are really like setting the context for this passage, and it starts with these words, when Jesus heard this. Now, good biblical interpretation, good hermeneutics says, when you read something like that, you should be asking, what is this? What's being referred to right here? What is it that Jesus heard? Well, uh, some mistakenly think that uh, Jesus is hearing about the death of John the Baptist, because that's what we read about last week. Uh, but remember, if you remember back to the first 12 verses of this book, the, the death of John the Baptist is a flashback moment. Okay, verses one and two is really what Jesus heard about. Okay, the flashback to John's death is probably back to chapter four or so. So Jesus clearly hasn't just heard about John's death. What Jesus has just heard about is that Herod the Tetrarch has heard about Jesus and he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead and he had killed John. And so now Jesus isn't ready to face Herod yet. He will, he will stand trial before Herod the Tetrarch. Yet Jesus withdraws to a desolate place is what our text says. He hears that Herod, who's very upset, thinks that he's John the Baptist, and so he withdraws. Now, in Luke's account of this, this uh, miracle, he identifies the place that Jesus withdraws to as Bethsaida. Now, that's an important detail because Bethsaida is outside the regional control of Herod the Tetrarch. 
It's outside of his realm. And that's why Jesus is actually withdrawing. And so it says that he goes to this desolate place by himself, but he is bringing his disciples. He's just leaving the crowds behind. But the text tells us that the crowds are so eager to be with Jesus that they follow him on foot. And as he's getting off the boat, he sees this huge crowd. And the text says that Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, I don't always tell you Greek words, but I want to tell you the Greek word that is translated compassion there because it's the word splagnitsomai, splagnitsomai. I don't tell you the Greek words because most of them I can't pronounce, but this one is fun, okay? Splagnitsomai, okay? Um, and splagnitsomai literally means to be moved in one's bowels. Splagnitsomai. Sounds like you were moved in the bowels, right? Splagnitsomai. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because in the ancient world, the bowels were thought to be the seat of of one's love and mercy, of one's compassion. Like deep inside of you, the place that broke for others, splagnitsomai, that's what's going on here. And so what this text is telling us is that Jesus sees this crowd who's foot racing him on a boat to try and keep being healed by Jesus. And he is deeply moved for them, deeply moved. And so the text says he starts healing them all day, just healing them one by one. And I bring all that up to to ask this question. Is that how you think of your unsaved friends and family? Do you have splagnitsomai for them? Like, are you moved deep in your bowels with compassion for them? Because that's how Jesus is described when he sees these people. That's how Jesus feels about those friends and family of yours. So that's the setting. That's the setting. Jesus is off the boat and he's healing. Now, verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Okay, so apparently he spent the whole day healing people. He's just getting out of Dodge early. He shows up on the bank. There's thousands and thousands of people in this crowd, and he starts healing them all day because now it's evening, and the disciples come to him with the problem, and this problem is that there are way too many people here for them to feed. They need to do dinner, and they don't have enough food for all these people. We're going to find out in verse 21 that there are exactly 5,000 men, and that they only counted the men and not the women and the children. So likely, there could be upwards of 20,000 people in this crowd. This is a mega church. The mega church meeting on the sea of banks of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus for healing. So, so that's the problem. There's all these people, and the disciples they propose a plan. They come up with a plan, send the people to go buy food for themselves. That's the plan. Now, listen, this is a logical solution to a real problem. This is actually the exact solution that I would come up with and that you would come up with in a similar situation. This is logic. But something really interesting happens here, okay? Uh, In John's gospel account of this story, 
he points out that it's not just the disciples who come to Jesus with this problem, but it's actually Philip, one of the disciples, who shows up with this ask of Jesus, this plan. Now, to know something about Philip is really helpful here. Philip was the disciple who Jesus called to follow him in John chapter one. And when Jesus calls Philip, Philip goes to his buddy, Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, we found the one who the law and the prophets wrote about, come and see. So Philip is the first evangelist. Philip is the first one on record that we have to ever share about who Jesus was to another person. But really an interesting thing here is in John 1, I'll put it up on the screen. This is what we find out. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, remember where Jesus had just withdrawn to? Bethsaida. So Philip is in his hometown. He knows the lay of the land. He probably knows every shop. He probably knows every grocery store. Not that they had those. He probably know, he knows where the farms are. He knows where the food is at. So Philip is in his hometown. And frankly, Philip has been following Jesus for a long time at this point. Since John chapter one, if you count, he's the fourth disciple out of 12 who are called to follow Jesus. So that means that he's there in John chapter two when Jesus performs his first miracle at the wedding at Cana. And that first miracle was when the wine ran out at the wedding, Jesus takes barrels of water and he transforms them from water into wine. And now we have Philip who, who may have even known some of the people in his crowd here. This is his hometown. He undoubtedly knew somebody in this crowd and he comes to Jesus with a logical solution to what seems like an insurmountable problem even after he had witnessed Jesus perform a miracle in maybe we say like a similar category. And I just think it might be something to note that we can often become the most apathetic where we are the most comfortable. in our hometown, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, and with our family and our friends. We can often become the most apathetic to the things of Jesus when we're in those comfortable situations. This is Philip. The come and see Philip is now saying, send them away. Send them away. But Jesus is about to blow their minds. He's going to blow their minds by involving the disciples deeper than at any other point in this miracle. The disciples will never be more involved in a miracle in all of the recorded scriptures than they are about to be in this miracle. So here we go. Verse 16. You know what's coming. But Jesus said to the disciples, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. So there it is. That's, that's my first point. That's the main point. You are the plan. You give them something to eat. Okay, the problem of 20,000 people with no food, the, the disciples' plan was send them away, and Jesus' plan was you. Jesus' plan was the disciples. 
You give them something to eat. In, in essence, I think he's saying, you have splagnizomai for them. You have compassion for them. You should feel it in your core, in your essence, this love and compassion for these people. And listen, if you trust me, if you trust me, I'll provide for you and you'll provide for them. But you gotta feel it. You're the plan. You give them something to eat. Verse 17, the disciples then said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish, which is a reasonable retort to Jesus' command. You give them something to eat. We got five pieces of bread and two fish. Were you crazy? Seriously. I mean, read it. If, you, if, you, if we didn't know the story, we'd read it and we'd think, Jesus is off his rocker, Right? This is all that they've got. How can they provide for 5,000 men and their families? And actually the other gospels, in Mark's gospel, they make it explicit. The disciples say, Jesus, it would, it would cost like 200 denarii to feed these people, to even just get them all a bite. Like it would cost uh, two thirds of a year's wages to do this. You crazy? John, in his gospel account, he says that uh, the five loaves and the two fish came from one little boy from one little boy. And John actually puts this little nuance in there. He says that they are five barley loaves. Now, barley is really important because barley is the grain of the poor person. It's a peasant's grain at this time, okay? So, uh, and also get out of your mind, like modern loaves of like Italian bread, right? These big old hunks of bread that you like slice up for spaghetti, like mopping up sauce. Like that's not what this is, okay? This boy doesn't carry around five loaves of bread like some Frenchman, okay? That'd be bizarre. That'd be very bizarre. No, you got to picture these barley loaves as like tiny little buns that he has. This is his lunch, five little loaves. And then frankly, I've been to Israel and the fish that the, the, this boy had, don't think of like the pig of a trout that you reeled in on your fly rod or like some sort of like large mouth bass that you're selfieing with to put up on Instagram. These are, these are, these are small little fish that are actually real salty and briny, almost kind of like a sardine that you would smear on that bread or like a cracker. That's his meal. This is his lunch, okay? This is a basic Galilean peasant boy's lunch. It's not meant for sharing. Now, as I'm reading this section this week, a thought that I had never had before while reading the passage hit me for the very first time, which made me immediately say, that might be heresy, okay? Because the minute you start thinking of new things that haven't been said about a text, it could be heretical, just so you're aware. Uh, so check me on this one. But um, this is the thought that I had. You're telling me that in a crowd of 20,000 people, all the food that was to be found was this one boy's sack lunch. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. So listen, when I was a kid, my mom would take uh, my brother and I every once in a while to the movie theater, go to the movies, okay? Um, and what's a, when you go to the movie theater, what's the first thing you see when you walk in the movie theater? Concession stand, yeah, yeah, yeah. Popcorn and, you know, butter and hot dogs and Sour Patch Kids and like soda machines. Like it's there, it's to tempt you, right? You don't walk right into the dark theater. You walk right into like a menagerie of goods. And, uh, and gosh, as a kid, if I didn't want a big old bucket of popcorn covered in that oily stuff, they pass off as butter. 
right? I wanted it so bad. Giant Sprite, that's, I just wanted all those. Throw some Sour Patch Kids in the popcorn, mix it all up. That's what I wanted as a child, okay? Uh, but my mama would never let me do that. We ain't spending 12 bucks on a tiny little bag of popcorn covered in that nasty oil. So what my mama would do is before we would leave our house, she would pop a bag of popcorn at home, okay? Anybody else, mamas, do this for them? If you're a mama who did this, don't admit it, okay? Um, (laughs) Mama would pop a bag of popcorn at home. She would divvy it up into smaller baggies, okay? She'd put it into baggies. Now, don't think Ziploc, okay? We weren't that bougie. Uh, Do you know those those sandwich bags that are impossible to fold closed? (laughs) She'd use those bags, okay? She'd spit it and then put a twisty tie on it, and she'd fill up four or five of these bags, and then she'd stuff them into her mom purse, like the mom bag, and she'd sneak popcorn into the theater for my brother and I to eat during the movies. Anybody else feel this, feel my pain, okay? It was embarrassing. I was just embarrassed by it as a child. Um, Well, inevitably, one of those bags would open up because like the twisty tie would come off or whatever, and it would open up, and the bag of popcorn would dump out into mama's purse. It just almost always happened. And I can remember uh, a few days or maybe a few weeks later, uh, being out with mama shopping or whatever, getting hungry uh, and, and, you know, sitting at Mervyn's or something. And she would give me her purse and she'd just say, go, you know, find, I'm just digging around in her bag for a little snack, looking for something to eat, only to find some of that spilled popcorn at the bottom of her bag. And I'm hot, I thought, score, right? We called it purse corn, okay? <laughs> it, it tasted like mince, you know? Uh, a, a little linty. Uh, you're trying to tell us, Matthew, that in a crowd of 20,000 people, there weren't at least a few Israelite mamas with a little pur- purse jerky with them, you know? A little something going on in their bag for their family, Listen, I I mean, I've been married 15 years. Every time I leave our house, my wife puts a granola bar in her bag, quote, just in case, all right? She has to clean it out once a month to dump out the baker's dozen or so chewy bars that end up in the bag. See, I don't even buy this. I don't buy that there were only five loaves and two fish in a crowd of 20,000. I don't buy it. I just think there's only one boy who brought it to Jesus. And it got me thinking, you know, how many more miracles were just sitting in purses that day? How many more fish and loaves were tucked away in bags that day? You see, my first point is that you are the plan, but my second point comes on its heels, and it's this, you can miss out. You are God's plan. And you can miss out. I mean, how often do we look at at what we have and think, no, that's not enough. That's just barley bread. That's just purse corn. Jesus can't do anything with what I've got. He can't do anything with what I have. I can't sing. I can't play the guitar. I can't preach. Those are the things that Jesus uses, not me. 
But I just want to offer that that's like Philip thinking here. Send them away. We got nothing. Five loaves, two fish. This is impossible. But you can miss out by leaving those things in your bag. Now let's see what happens. Verse 18. Here's where it gets real. And Jesus said, bring them here to me, the fish and the loaves. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So I think this is a real practical section here. Some would say it's just, it's not prescriptive, it's more descriptive. I think it's kind of prescriptive. I think it's a prescription for how we ought to do some things when it comes to doing ministry. And so let me say this. I've got four steps here for how we are the plan, how you are the plan. And the first step is this. You gotta bring it. You gotta bring it. You gotta bring what you've got to Jesus. He will not force it upon you. He ain't gonna come and dig around in your bag and take it. You gotta bring it to him. It might be your time. It might be your ability or a gifting. Maybe it's a relationship with somebody that you have. Maybe it's the place that you live, the location, the place you work. Like no matter how seemingly small you think it might be, you gotta bring Jesus what you've got. That's step one. You bring it. Now, note in step one that we are involved, but we're passive. Right? Like we bring it, the message is clear. None of us can, can, can do anything with just like leaving it in the bag. You gotta bring it, but then none of us can accomplish anything of consequence with it on our own. We gotta bring what we've got. Just like the boy brings this poor kid's sack lunch to Jesus, we bring it. Step two, we, we bless it. We bless it. We bless it. He blesses it. Like it gets blessed. That's what he does. Jesus has a blessing. Now just pause with me for a second and, and know this. What, what, when I say blessing, it's not like Jesus like sprinkles a little like Jesus fairy dust over top of the things that we bring it and it has some sort of imputed power in and of itself. That's not what the, he's not blessing the food. You ever seen that? You ever said that? Hey, would you bless the food? The food don't need your blessing, yo. Okay, food nourishes you. That's what food does, okay? When Jesus blesses it, he's blessing his father for the food. This is a moment of thankfulness. This is a moment of gratitude. He's thanking his father for the food and thus it becomes a blessing. So when we bring what we've got to Jesus, he's gonna bless it and it's gonna bless us and we're gonna be thankful for it and it's going to become a blessing. But it has to do with not some sort of miracle sauce that Jesus spreads over the top of it. It's a thankfulness thing. We bless it. Step three, he'll often then break it. He'll often break it. Now, commentators are split on this one, just so you know, just so you're aware. I read guys this week who said this is purely pragmatic. Jesus just broke it so that he could distribute it better, all right? But other commentators, and I think I lean into this field as well, think there might be some figurative breaking going on here as well. 
See, when we bring what we have to Jesus, he will often break it apart to be used more efficiently, effectively for his purpose in a way that maybe we've never seen before. And sometimes when you bring your gift or whatever it is to Jesus and he starts breaking it, you can say, wait, 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 Jesus, don't do that. You're going to ruin this. No, 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 no. I know how that should be used. I'm bringing it to you. Just give me your blessing so that I can go do it. And, and Jesus sometimes don't work like that, yo. Sometimes he'll take what you bring him and he'll break it and it looks like it's tragedy, but he's only doing it to multiply it. He's only doing it to use it for your good and for his glory. So he'll break it. And then finally, step four, we give it. Bring it, break it, or bless it, break it, give it. I tried to think of another B. Really, I worked hard this week. Lots of thesaurus work. Bounce it was as close as I got. And I was like, no, that, that's lame. Somebody said after second service, bestow it. I was like, golly, you kidding me? I'll put on a vestment next week. <laughs> bestow it. Jesus, listen, listen here, right here, come on. Jesus gives the loaves back to the disciples. And then the disciples give the loaves to the crowd. It's like a double give. He gives it and then you give it. Again, you're the plan. You are the plan. He's gonna take and he's gonna break and he's gonna bless, but then he's gonna hand it back to you to do the work of the ministry for him. That's the text. Now, let's finish this last. We'll see the result here, verses 20 and 21. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. I love that the text says that they all ate and were satisfied. I love that it didn't say they all ate and were full. You know, there's a difference between being full and being satisfied. Right? You go to a buffet, you can eat to the full, but it ain't satisfying, right? Ain't nobody coming out of country town buffet saying satisfaction, right? Like this, this has never happened. They ate and they were satisfied and there were even leftovers, more than enough abundance. This is the story. This is the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. So the question that I want to ask us, and I want to ask of this text, really, um, is why did Jesus do it this way? This one's recorded four times. This is the one miracle where the disciples are intimately involved. Jesus never like asked one of the disciples to make some blind guy not blind anymore. This is the one where he puts it in his disciples' hands. Why? Why do you do this? Why, why this miracle to feed the people? Why didn't Jesus, listen, why didn't Jesus just do it himself and get back to healing folk? Just like snap and like make the bread and the fish appear and then just get back to work. Well, as a good pastor, I should quote C.S. Lewis. So let's quote C.S. Lewis. This is what he says. God seems to do nothing of himself, which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly 
what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. You are the plan. And I know I've illustrated like this before, but I'm, I, I can't think of a better one. I tried this week and I couldn't come up with it. So let me share this with you again. When I was growing up, um, every single weekend, my dad was working on some project around our house or like doing some chore, working in the yard. Like he just took a lot of pride in our home. And so every, every weekend he would mow the lawn meticulously. Like he'd try to make it look like a baseball field, you know, like with like perfect lines crisscrossing. It looked like Coors Field in our backyard, which I now try to do because I think it's awesome, right? It doesn't always look that good, but like, I, I like that. Uh, dad would always plant a tree or like tear a tree, like cut a tree down or like he moved trees. I don't know if your parent, like moving trees, I didn't know it was a thing, but he would like dig up a tree and move it, like better shade or soil. I don't know what he was doing. Um, and then he was also a very good craftsman. He would, he, one time he built an entirely new two-level deck on our back, the back of our house. I mean, just really, really impressive uh, guy. Well, I can remember as a little boy wanting so badly to help dad with this stuff. I just wanted to help dad with these tasks. And so I remember every Saturday, if dad was mowing the lawn, I had this little plastic lawnmower that had a button on it that would squirt water. And I would just follow him and squirt him just the whole time, just walking with him step-by-step following dad as he mowed the lawn. And if dad was planting a tree, like if he was digging up a hole, I would run to my sandbox, get my plastic shovel, ran back, and I would help my dad dig that hole to move or plant that tree. And if dad was building the deck, like when he was building the deck, I had like a little, you know, little kid's uh, tool belt and I had some tools that I would shove in there and I'd just go, I'd be with him step-by-step step, helping him build the deck. And dad was great. I mean, he'd help me. Like, I mean, he would thank me for like helping. He'd be like, thanks, Chris, for helping me mow even though I'm all wet now from squirting, you know, but like, he was cool. He would, he would let me dig holes in the yard wherever I wanted to to put trees, even if that wasn't where the tree was going. So I would just like start digging. And dad would even, he, when we was doing that deck, he even gave me a couple of pieces of wood and like a hammer and a nail. And I was like, just banging on that thing, trying to put nails into the wood, helping him out building the deck. And I promise you as a child, as like a four or five-year-old, I literally thought I was dad's number two worker. I mean, like without me, he wasn't getting any of these things done. I truly believed it. I thought it for sure. I would tell my friends, what'd you do this week? I built a deck with my dad, right? I wasn't doing anything, right? Because um, now as a dad myself with a little girl, I, I realize I wasn't helpful at all. <laughs> In fact, I made every single task immeasurably harder than it would have been if dad had just done it on his own. I mean, I made the cutting of the grass take like double the time because he had to go change his pants, you know? <laughs> And those holes, I didn't realize it, but those holes that I was digging for trees, later in the day, dad would have to go fill those back up and like, you know, painstakingly reseed the sod there. And, and it took me, I mean, I'm slower. So it took me a few years to realize, but I remember thinking a few years later, standing on the deck, hey, where are the boards that I was hammering? They didn't use these on the deck. What happened? I mean, I was of no help practically at all. But the reason why my dad let me work with him wasn't because he needed my help. 
See, the reason my dad let me work with him was threefold. He loved me. He wanted to spend time with me. And he wanted me to become more like him. I guess that illustration would have been more applicable on Father's Day um, rather than Mother's Day, but, but it's the same with my daughter. Listen, Harper is like Marcy's mini-me, following after mama. She wants to help mama bake. She wants to like work out with mama. They're like doing Pilates in the, the room. I don't know, they're doing, like she wants to do all the things that mama does. Church, this is what ministry is. It's going to work with your dad. And it's not even that he needs you. Right, it'd be far more practical for God to just simply show up to everybody in a burning bush. If we had a burning bush out front, I promise you our church would be full. For reals. Be far more pragmatic if God would just audibly speak to everybody. It'd be far more utilitarian if God would just heal some people. If God would just reveal himself to more people. If God would just serve the people by himself. Jesus, just feed them. Why are you using us imperfectly? But that's just not how God decided to do this. You are the plan. You're the plan. I'm the plan. We're the plan. Why? Because that's how he does. So what do you have? What do you got? Okay, what do you have to bring to him? This is usually the part of the sermon, actually, where I, you know, I start, I bring it home and I like do the application points. And here's what happens. Uh, I think that the enemy starts to whisper to us. It's, it's normally at this point where the enemy begins to whisper to us with, hear me, reason and logic. And he whispers to us, trying to get us to miss out. You don't have what it takes. You're not that gifted. Listen, if you bring what you have, people, people are going to see it and they're going to laugh. If you bring it, there won't be enough. Just leave that in the bag. You're too busy anyway. You're tired enough. You need some you time, so don't worry about it. Or not just coming to us with these reasons, but he'll come to us with sometimes condemnation. You can't do this. You can't be used with what you've done. If they only knew, they'd never want you on the team. Just stay where you're at. To which I would just want to lovingly respond with, have you seen God's draft board? I mean, have you seen how this guy drafts? He drafts like the Broncos draft. You chose who? You cared? Are you serious? That's who you picked in the third round? Really? I mean, listen, so I, I said this in the first service, but if, if you were valedictorian and if you were an all-American and, and top of your class and one of the best of the best, right? You were the student body president. You were the prom king or the prom queen. I've got great news for you. God can use you too. You're just not his first choice. I'm sorry to say it, but you're not. 
all through the Bible, God likes to use the nobodies and the nothings from nowhere to do exceedingly more than we could hope or imagine. One peasant boy with five loaves and two fish in a crowd of 20,000. Nobody was picking that kid. I mean, think about this. Think about who God picks in the Bible. Noah was a drunk. Jacob was a thief and a liar. Joseph was a convict. Moses was a murderer. Samson was a bully. Gideon was a coward. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a womanizer. Jonah was a racist. Mary was a teen mom out of wedlock. Peter was a hypocrite. James and John were power hungry. Matthew was a traitor. Thomas was a doubter. Paul was a terrorist. Russell Wilson was a Seahawk. (laughs) He can use anybody. That's what the whole Bible is about. He uses who he chooses. So what about you? What do you have? What do you got? What do you have? Here's how I want to close. We're, We're all done. I want us to pray. We always pray, but I want us to pray. And, and, and here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you as we pray to just set your la- hands in your lap with the palms facing upward and just kind of open, just in a position of receiving. And I know if you're not charismatic, you may, this might make you feel weird, whatever, but just stay with me here, okay? I want you to just have your hands open. And as I pray, I want you to ask God to show you what it is you've got. What do I got? What do I have? Maybe it's time. Maybe it's an ability. Maybe it's a resource. Maybe it's influence with someone. But I want you to have this posture of being open to receive what that is and also to let it go, to bring it to him. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what it is you need to bring him so he can take it and he can bless it and he can break it. And then he put it back in those open hands for you to use for his kingdom's sake. So if you'd just humor me, do that with me. Let's pray together. Father, we position ourselves with hands open, both showing you what we've got and also eagerly prepared to receive what you wanna give us. Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? Would you remind us of of what we have, even the seemingly insignificant things, the the loaves and the fish that we might have in our bag. Lord, I pray that through the power of your spirit, we'd see it and we'd bring it to you. We'd offer it to you. We'd surrender it to you. And God, I pray that you take it and you do what you do best. You bless it and you break it and you multiply it for your sake. Father, use us. If we're the plan, we want to be used by you. We don't want to miss out on this. So God, for your glory, use us. Holy Spirit, take these things that are in our heads and our minds and move them to action in our hearts. We love you, Father. We thank you that you call us to work with you. Lord, you love us. Lord, you want to be with us. And Lord, you want us to become more like you. Help us to do that. 
We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.